Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. It's good to have you here this morning. If you are a first or a second time guest, we are glad to have you. We're happy that you're here. Some of you may be with family visiting from out of town, and so they said if you want to eat lunch with us today, you need to come to church, so you're here because of that. Some of you may be vacationing in this area, and you wanted to be a part of a church this morning, and you've joined us on this holiday weekend. Some of you were heading to the beach. You got caught up into the traffic, and you ended up in our parking lot, and you don't know where you are. Well, you're at Scotts Hill. We're glad that you're here this morning. I have some family in town. I have my two sisters here and my brother-in-law sitting right next to my wife. Good to have all of them. Um, Peggy and Faye and John. Um, so it's been a great time that we've had with them this weekend. We took them to Ballhead Island, put them on some bicycles, wore them out, and then got them back to the house last night. We've had a great time. Um, we are, just before I get started this morning, I just want to give you a little program note of where we're going in the days ahead. Next week, we're starting a new series on the book of Romans. We're going to be taking an in-depth look at one of the greatest doctrinal pieces that we find in the New Testament and one of the most clearest arguments for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take about, yes, 30 weeks pouring into the book of Romans, and we're going to take this chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I've been working through that, and I'm excited about us jumping in next week to a long study in one of the greatest uh, doctrinal theological works that we find in the New Testament, and I believe the church is at a place today where we need to understand. We need to go back to understand what God's Word says to us in clarity about the need for the gospel. But until then, we're between series right now. We just finished up the elephant in the room. And so today, I'm going to be preaching what is known as a standalone sermon. A standalone sermon typically happens on two situations. Either when you're between series and you need kind of a gap between those and you put a standalone sermon, or if it's a holiday weekend and you need a standalone sermon. This message today is because of both of those reasons. It's because we're between series and it is a holiday weekend. So I'm giving to you a standalone sermon that is not necessarily connected to any series or other messages. Now, why did I share all that with you? It's because a lot of times in our own lives, spiritually, we find ourselves kind of in standalone places. We find ourselves kind of between two events in our lives. And sometimes we find ourselves in these places that we could call an interlude. It might be between a couple of difficult things. It might be a, a time, an interlude between maybe a diagnosis and a prognosis. And you're not quite sure what the future holds. It might be a time where you're between two jobs and you're going to be moving to a new job and you have this interlude and you're thinking about what the future might be. It might be a time when you move from one city to the other and you've got this time to try to adjust and to rest and to assess where you are. Or it could be maybe you're between a time of pain and healing. Maybe you're between a time of confusion and wisdom. 
Maybe you're in a time where you're not quite sure what God wants you to do next. And the reality is we all fall in places like this, don't we? We're either in times of interlude or we're going to be heading into a time of interlude. We might be in this time where we have to figure out how do we make the adjustments in our life? How do I set the compass for where God wants me to go? And it's in those times where we need to rest. We need to listen. We need to be still and we need to hear the voice of God in the midst of all of those things. Well, that's where we are today. And when I, when I think about those interludes and kind of those transitional times in our life, I'm even, I'm even leery to even use the word transition in these days. But when you're in those places, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you're in those places, you need to know what does God in. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for this light momentarily, of momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's in these times where God can do some of his greatest work. It's in the times of uh, uh, maybe uh, uncertainty. It's in the time when we're in the desert that God does some of the greatest things in our lives where he refines us and he reshapes us for his glory. And the early church certainly knew about this because the early church always had to live in this interlude. And in fact, every believer to a degree we're living in an interlude. Because when we come to faith in Christ, there are two big pillars in our lives. One's a beginning and one's an end. When we come to faith in Christ, there's justification where we're counted right in Christ. And then at the end of that is glorification where we will spend eternity with Christ. But between this justification and glorification is this grueling process that every believer finds himself or herself in. It's called sanctification. It's where God is making us like Christ. And it's in these interlude times where God wants to do an incredible work in our lives. This morning, I want to focus on a psalm. It's Psalm 16. And it speaks about what to do when you find yourself in an interlude. So take your Bibles, take your devices, turn to Psalm 16. Right in the middle of your Bible, get to Psalm 16. Now, what we need to do is while you're turning there, let me kind of help you to understand what Psalm 16 is all about. Every, every psalm has a context. Every psalm has a history behind it. And a lot of times when we read the psalms, we just read them without the thought of what's behind this. Psalm 16 is believed by scholars to be an interlude in David's life as he is dealing with his adversary, Saul. Now, Saul is the king of Israel. He's the very first king. Saul was a jealous king. He was a disobedient king. And God had set him apart and anointed David to be the next king. And this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 26. And the story goes like this. The psalm setting is that it's a wilderness situation. King Saul is after David. He's got 3,000 of his finest soldiers to hunt David down and kill him because he's jealous of him. And so they are camped out in the wilderness of this place called Zip. And as they're there, David hears about King Saul and all of his men camping out. So David takes one of his fine young men, Abishai. And Abishai is the brother of Joab, who is his general, David's general. David's got 600 men. And so he hears about Saul camping out. And in the darkness of night, David and Abishai sneak into the camp of Saul. 
And when they go into the camp of Saul, all the men are asleep. He spots Saul and he spots Ahab, who is Abner, who is his general. And he's there sleeping next to each other. And then David sneaks up to Saul. And Abishai says, there he is. There's the enemy. At, David, at Saul's head was his spear stuck in the ground, and next to it was a water jug. And Abishai just tells him, take the spear, run him through, and rid ourselves of this enemy. And David says to him, you shall not touch the Lord's anointed and be blessed. He takes the spear, he takes the water jug, and they sneak out of the camp. Nobody knew they were there. Now we find out later that the Lord had put the whole army into a deep sleep. And when he leaves there, he goes out onto this hill a distant way, and then he begins to scream out. He says, Abner, Abner, you're not a very good general and bodyguard. I sneaked into the camp, and I stole Saul's spear, and I stole his water jug. You should lose your job, basically, is what he's saying. And then Saul wakes up. He says, David, is that you? He said, it is me. He says, why are you hunting me down like a flea in the wilderness? I have done nothing to you. And Saul says, you're right, David. You're more righteous than I am. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And so what happens is Saul takes his men. He goes back. David takes his 600 men. They go back into the wilderness. And he's at this time of tranquility. It's peace. And he writes Psalm 16 during an interlude, because it's going to pick back up. The fight's going to continue on. But in this moment of quietness, what does David do? Here's what he tells us. If you have your Bibles, Psalm 16. We're going to read all 11 verses, and you follow along as I lead us. He begins, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When David pens these words, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are three things that David is teaching us. And there are three things that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about today. And I believe these things are as valuable and are as relevant for us as they were for David those thousands of years ago. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see three things that you and I are to do when we're in an interlude. Three things that we are to do when we find ourselves in a place of quietness, where we might be in that place that's between two difficult things. What do we do? 
David tells us three things to do, and here's what I want to give them to you. All right, here's the first one. Always reflect on the greatness of God. Whenever you're in a difficult place, whenever you're in a questionable place, whenever you're in a place that's uncertain, stop and reflect on the greatness of God. That is so important because many times when we find ourselves in difficulties, we reflect on the difficulties, don't we? We're consumed with the pain and the hurt. We're consumed with the things around us and we forget about the one who is over all of those things. So when I'm in the midst of a place of difficulties, what do I do? I reflect on the greatness of God. Notice the first four verses. Here's what he says. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. When David is talking about reflecting on the goodness of God, what he's saying is this, that there's some things we to look for God in as we deal with our lives. As we're going through the course of my life, how can I look and find God in the normal courses of my everyday living? And he points out three things that we're to look for. Here's the first thing. We are to look for God in his power and his presence. We look all around us and look for the examples and the illustration of God's power and presence in our life. Now, when David says verse one and writes it, we get the English version of it, but we don't see the Hebrew in it. When David uses the Lord's name in verse one, he uses three different names to describe the power and the greatness of God. If we can read it in Hebrew, it would sound like this. Preserve me, O Elohim, God, for in you I take my refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Three different names. Why is that important? The word Elohim, every time you see that in the Old Testament, refers to God. Elohim refers to God. Elohim is plural in nature, which gives us a picture of the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And every time you see the word Elohim, he's speaking of power, his ability to create. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Elohim said, and that demonstrates God's power and his majesty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. Every time you see the word Yahweh, you will see it in the Old Testament as Lord in all caps. Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's talking about God understanding us in an intimate, personal way. He knows every intricacy of our hearts. He knows every cell. He knows every strand of DNA. Everything about us, he intimately knows. And it talks about his personal knowledge of us. And then Adonai, you'll see it in Lord, just a capital L. And when you see that, it speaks of his power, his protection, and his love. Here's what David is saying. He's saying, Lord, you are the one who preserves me. You're the omnipotent God. 
You're the one who knows me intimately. And you're the one who goes before me. And David sees himself as completely hemmed in all around by Almighty God in every aspect of his attribute and his character. And that means that when you and I get to places in our life that we need to understand that the fullness of the creator understands where we are. And he is the one that can help us walk through the most difficult times in our lives. I think about so many times that when we go through difficulties, we don't go through those alone. Think about this. The entire Trinity is involved in your salvation. The Father has chosen you from the creations of the earth. The Lord Jesus went to the cross to die on your behalf to redeem you and reconcile you to God. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and he is the one that makes you like Christ from day to day. And every single aspect of your life, you are hemmed in with God in his power and his presence. Listen to this. There's nothing that's going to come to you that doesn't first go through him. There's no difficulty that it will ever come into your life that he does not allow to come into your life and already knows it and already has a plan for the escape and the victory in it. So no matter where you find yourself in life, look for God's presence and his power all around you. But another way to reflect on his greatness is not just to look for his presence and his power, but look for God and his people. Look for God in his people. We so often forget this. David puts it this way. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David surrounded himself with 600 men. Of the 600 men, he had 30 mighty men. Of the 30 mighty men, he had three men who would give their very lives for David. And one of them, Abishai, would. And so he had all of these wonderful saints who encouraged him, who sharpened him, who held him accountable, who challenged him. And in the midst of all of these difficulties, he gave thanks to God for the saints around him. I'm going to tell you, we need that. I remember when Leslie was, was young. See, we put her to bed one night and there was a thunderstorm coming through. And she was crying and crying and crying about the thunderstorm. And I went down there and I got next to her bed and I said, honey, it's okay. God is with you. God's going to protect you. He's taking care of our home. She says, daddy, I know that. I know that. But right now I need somebody with skin on. (laughs) Isn't that true of you? Isn't that true of us? It's one thing for us to know that, yes, God is walking with us. It's another thing for me to know that I have a faith family that cares about me. I have brothers and sisters who love me. And we need to know one thing that's very important, that the Christian life is not a solo act. It's not a monologue. Because we live with one another. I love the Apostle Paul. He writes in Romans chapter 14, he says, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. When you go to Romans chapter 16, he lists a number of people that he is fond of in ministry. He names 28 people by name. And then he just mentions brothers and sisters, and that would be another long list of individuals. We need one another. And as we go through difficult times, the worst thing we can do as believers is to isolate ourselves from one another. It's in those times where we need a faith family. I need somebody to walk with me. I need somebody with skin on. 
who can understand my deepest hurts. And I'm going to tell you, if you're not in a small group, if you're not involved in a community group, if you're not with a group of believers, then you are easy prey for the enemy. And you're easily distracted and discouraged by the difficulties of life. But when we get together in a family, I want to tell you, pastoring 30 years, I've said a lot of things from this platform. Some of them really good, some of them really stupid. And as a result, I have received emails through the course of the year. I've received some pretty bad emails. I've received some very hurtful letters. I've had people show up in my office, accuse me of all kinds of things negatively and falsely. And through the course of 30 years, if you stay in a place, you're going to get that. But far more than that are the emails of encouragement and the text that I'm praying for you and the phone calls of lifting us up. And all of those things are the things that have encouraged my heart. And we as pastors at Scotts Hill are a commitment to loving our people in such a way that every single elder in our church has a list of all the members of our church and we're responsible for calling and texting. And the list is so large we cannot take care of it. So each of our elders has a deacon that helps us make those phone calls. And if you're on my list, you have received a lot of texts and a lot of emails in the last couple of months. And all of our elders are committed to doing that for you. But we encourage you to do that for one another because we're a family together. When you're going through a difficult time, when we're reflecting on the greatness of God, not only do I look for him in his power and his presence in my life, not only do I look for him in his people, but thirdly, I look for God's grace and problems. I'm looking for his grace in every situation that I go through to see how he is working behind the scenes to accomplish his good pleasure. We find it, he puts it this way in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They drink Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I'm not even going to speak of all of the idols. David lived in a world that was filled with idols, idolatry. The whole countryside was riddled with idols and broken down idols, and the people were involved in all kinds of false worship of false gods. The thought was if you take a deity's name on your lips, then you would have the power of that deity. David would not even participate in that. And yet in the midst of all that, David recognizes it is God's grace that kept him from being there. He was at the youngest of eight brothers. It was God who put his his love on David to be the king. And it's by, by the grace of God that David has ended up where he is. Is nothing that he has done. And in the midst of all of his problems, God's grace. I'm reminded of when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. And as they go through the countryside, they're casting out demons. They're doing all kinds of miracles. They're teaching. People are being healed. They come back and they give this incredible report to Jesus. They say, you won't believe what happened, man. Demons are fleeing. People are being healed. People are listening to us. He's excited. They're all excited. But Jesus says this to them in Luke 10, 20. He says, nevertheless, good. Glad to hear that. But do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's one thing for all of these things, but listen, it's not about you, it's about my grace. And the only way that you can have a relationship with me is through the grace of God. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Every problem we encounter in culture and that God gives us the grace to overcome that, it's not of ourselves. 
You want to know what the beautiful thing about heaven is going to be? There's not going to be one person in heaven patting themselves on the back and said, I made it. (laughs) Nobody's going to be singing Barry Manilow's song, Look Like We Made It. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody's going to be doing that. Why? Because it's only the grace of God. So David says this. Listen, when you're reflecting on the greatness of God, look for his power in your life. Look to the saints who can encourage you and lean into the grace of God that's going to carry you far beyond the problems of your life and of culture. So he says this, always reflect on the greatness of God. Here's the second truth that he teaches us. Not only am I to reflect on the greatness of God, but secondly, I am to rehearse the blessings of God. Here's something really important. It's one thing to reflect on the power of Almighty God in my life. It's another thing to rehearse the blessings of my life. Because a lot of times when we're going through difficult times, we don't look at the good things. We always look at the bad things. When we're in the pit, we don't look at the sun above us. We look at the walls in front of us, don't we? And one of the things we need to learn as believers is, as that old hymn says, count your many blessings and what? Name them one by one. Go through it. And that's what David does. He begins to bless God for the blessings in his own life. Look at verses 5 through 8. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Then he goes on. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So what is he saying? When you and I are to rehearse the blessings of God, what does that mean? Let me give you four things real quick. Number one, look for God's providence. Look for his providence in your life. And he puts it this way. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now let me remember what David came from. His father is Jesse. He's got seven brothers. He's the eighth of eight brothers. He's the youngest one. Samuel gets an impression from God to come to Jesse because one of his sons is going to be the king. And so Samuel, um, Jesse parades his sons in front of Samuel one by one, one by one, one by one. And for each of the first seven, he says, nope, 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 nope. Then he asks Jesse, he says, don't you have another one? He said, oh yeah, but he's in the field. He's watching sheep. Go get him. And David comes up. And in that moment, Saul sees him, anoints him as the next king. It was God's providence. Now, what is God's providence? The sovereignty of God is his understanding of all things in the universe. His providence is that which is underneath it, which works and directs all of those things for his glory. And his providence is such that God is the one that's behind the scenes. God's the one that's working the the situation out. In God's economy, there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as being at the right place at the right time. There's no such thing as luck. I hear Christians all the time talking about luck and coincidence, and I happen to be here. No, it's providence. Providence is not God pulling the strings and make everybody look like a puppet. Providence is God taking all the choices of humanity, whether good or bad, and using them to accomplish his purpose. And where you are in your life is the providence of God. 
Where he has placed you in your walk is the providence of God. What he is doing to accomplish what he wants to do in you is his providence. And it's his pleasure to put you in a place like that. You're not there by luck. You're not there by coincidence. You are there because God has you there. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow because you don't like where you are. You don't like the state that you're in. But in the midst of all that, God's wisdom is perfect. In the midst of all that, his sovereignty is complete. In the midst of all that, his love for you is continual. And as a result, he will never make a mistake in his providence of where you are because he's doing something in you. And as David is counting the blessings of God, he's giving thanks to the providence that God pulled him from behind a sheep and has made him the king of Israel for his glory. So when you count your blessings, thank God for his providence and what he's working and directing in your life. But here's the second part of that. Look for God's pleasure. Not only does God providentially put you where he wants you, but listen, it is his pleasure to put you there. David says it this way. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is a wonderful blessing to know that God, it is your pleasure that's placed me here. I've had family members in the past that say, Phil, you get all the breaks. Everything seems to work out for you. No, no, it's God's providence and his pleasure to have me here. I don't deserve a bit of it. But what do I do is I give thanks to him that my place is a pleasant place. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. David had difficult days. David had struggles. He had enemies wanting to kill him. He had children rebelling against him. There's nothing pleasant about that. But in God's providence and pleasure, he carried David through the midst of every one of those things. Here's the third thing that I see. Listen for God's promptings. In the midst of these times as you're giving a, re uh, a rehearsing the blessings of God, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Here's the wonderful thing about God. He invites us to come to him, as Donnie said earlier, to seek his wisdom and his counsel. Jeremiah tells us that we are to call upon the Lord and he will answer us and he will show us great and unsearchable things that we do not know. And here's the wonderful thing, that as we seek the counsel of God, this, this, this verse is telling us that even in the midst of our deep sleep, God who never sleeps begins to work in our hearts and our minds and our souls as we sleep. And when you wake up, suddenly there seems to be the answer. There seems to be the peace. The struggle that you were working with is gone because even in the midst of your sleep, God answers and provides counsel. Here's the fourth thing in this. Look for his protection. Look for his protection in the midst and give praise to God for that. He puts it this way. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Again, David's painting a picture that he is hemmed in by God. And because he's hemmed in by God, God will protect him. And nothing about his walk with God will be shaken because of the presence and the power of God in his life. Several years ago, I, I remember these. Some of you may recall this. There were these pieces of art that, that were kind of popping up everywhere at stores, like at Kirkland's and in a mall and stuff like that. But these pieces of art were kind of interesting because they had all of these geometric designs on them and very colorful. And when you look at them on the outset, it just looks like chaos. 
It was an unintelligible design. It was just all kind of shapes and geometrical designs on it. And you look at it and you say, okay, that's appeasing to the eye, but I don't get it. I don't see anything of value in that. But the point was you were supposed to stare at a point into that picture. And as you stared at all of those designs and you began to give an intent look at it, suddenly from all of that chaos would emerge a 3D picture of something. Any of you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And, and so I must remember it because I'm talking about it. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, it, it would emerge. So I'm standing there and I'm looking at this one. I said, oh man, that's cool. Okay, I stare at this one. Okay, some other image. And I get to the third one and it startles me. And as I'm staring at it, I'm staring at it, I'm staring at it, you got to be intense. You can't take your eye off of it. And I keep looking, and all of a sudden, this 3D image of Jesus on the cross emerges. And it was like the Holy Spirit just pricked my heart and said, in the midst of the chaos, he is there. In the midst of the craziness, he is there. Here's how David says it in that verse. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I have set the Lord always before me. Here's the picture. Every circumstance, every difficulty, every pain, every disappointment, I put the Lord Jesus as the template in every one of those things. And no matter what the pain is, behind that template is the Lord Jesus. Behind the struggle is the Lord Jesus. Behind the questions is the Lord Jesus. And I, he is the template for all things of my life. And I can look through the chaos. In the midst of the chaos of my life, he is there. He's always there. And when I go through the difficulties of life, I could give praise to God not only because of his providence and his pleasure, but because of his protection that he is always before me. Listen, child of God, you are never in a struggle alone. You not only have brothers and sisters with you, but the Lord Jesus is always before you. Now, he says we're to reflect on the greatness of God. We're to rehearse the blessings of God. But here's the last thing, and this is the greatest we're to rejoice in the promises of God. He closes this great psalm out with rejoicing. He begins by talking about reflecting and rehearsing, and now he's rejoicing, and now he's looking to the future. He's not looking at his current situation. God, by the Holy Spirit, has given him a glimpse of something in the future that nobody else in the Old Testament was able to get a glimpse of. And what is it? This is how he says it. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. As he's talking about this thing of rejoicing in the promises of God, he tells us that there are, just, there are three things that we see him doing. What does he see? Here's what he sees. He sees, number one, he looks at his own resurrection. He's not just looking at resurrection in general. He's got a glimpse of his own resurrection. Here's how he puts it. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. We don't really get a lot of theology in the Old Testament about resurrection or our resurrected bodies one day. 
We know that the rabbis and the Pharisees talked about the resurrection. Remember Mary and, and Martha about Lazarus? They talked about, yes, we understand there will be a resurrection. But David, whatever his knowledge of, he understood that one day he will experience a resurrection. That, that this is not all there is to life. The struggles that we go through, this is not it. You and I are never living for the moment. As believers, we're living for eternity. Every moment. And so when we're living in the not uh, the already but not yet, we're living for the moment. And there's going to be a day where our bodies will be resurrected for all of eternity and we will be with the Lord. And so whatever struggle you're going through, whatever difficulty you're going through, it's not always going to be like this. People who struggle with anxiety, one day there will be no more anxiety. People who struggle with depression, one day there will be no more depression. People who struggle with a debilitating illness, there one day will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. All of the things of this life that we have to struggle with, one day will be no more. And I will say this, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you're a child of God, earth is the closest thing to hell that you will ever experience. But if you're not a child of God, earth is the closest thing to heaven that you'll ever experience. And when we are walking in the promises of God, we can know this as children of God, that one day it's not going to be like this. And we look forward to that. Now, we don't want to go to heaven because there's no, simply because, let me put it this way. It's not that we want to go to heaven because there'll be no more pain. That's the wrong reason. Here's the second part. It's a look at the Redeemer. So look at the Redeemer. David not only looks at his own resurrection that one day is going to come, but he's looking towards the Redeemer. This next phrase is what's known as a messianic phrase. It's a, it's, it's, it's a messianic promise. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees, the rabbis all believed this. Peter preached about it on the day of Pentecost. Paul preaches about it in Acts chapter 13. And here's what he says. He says, or let your holy one see corruption. David is not referring to himself. He never refers to himself as the holy one. That's a reference to the Messiah. And somehow David had the opportunity to get a glimpse about the Redeemer. We don't know what the depth of that is, but he understood it. And God used this by the power of the Holy Spirit, instructing him to write this for our benefit as well. Here's, here's the joy. That not only, listen, oh, we're going to have a resurrected body one day, but we're going to be face to face with the one who died to redeem us, the Lord Jesus. And all of this struggle, all of this pain is for his glory and for his good. And there's going to be a day when I'm going to stand face to face with my risen Savior. I've said this, if Jesus were not in heaven, I wouldn't want to go. If Jesus were not there, I would not want to be there because he's the only one who died and paid the price that I could be with God for eternity. So the promise is this. Not only is there a resurrection, but we will be with Jesus forever, and we will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb celebrating with him and with all of the brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. And here's the last thing he says. There'll be relentless joy. 
there will be relentless joy. He puts it this way. You make known to me the path. He didn't say a path. He didn't say one of many paths. He says the path. And what is the path? It's through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so David begins in this interlude of reflecting on God's greatness. He rehearses in this place the blessings, and then he rejoices in the promises. So what does that do for us? If you're a child of God, God is using everything through the process of sanctification to make you like Christ. And it's in those quiet times where God wants us to go back and to remember how great he is. It's in those times where God wants us to count the blessings that he is pouring into our lives. And the culmination of that is in those times is to remind ourselves that this is not what it's always going to be like as a child of God. One day, this person who has been justified and who has been going through the process of sanctification will one day stand in glorification with him. All for his glory. So you might be today between a diagnosis and a prognosis. Rejoice. There are three things that I've learned in my life that have revolutionized my walk with Jesus and my absolute confidence with him. It's this. Number one, God is sovereign over everything. There's never a time when he does not know what's happening Secondly, God is perfect in his wisdom. No matter what happens to me, God did not make a mistake. And thirdly, he's constant in his love. He always loves me. So if tomorrow I find out I have cancer and I've got six months to live, God is sovereign. He's wise perfectly, and he's going to love me through it. And at the end of the day, is a resurrection. At the end of my life is a redeemer. And at the end of it all is relentless joy forevermore. For those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, that should be our focus as we're living for him. If you're here today and you're not a believer, my friend, this is all you have. And it will get far worse than what this life can ever bring because it will be an eternal separation from God. As I said earlier, you're as closest to heaven right now as you will ever be. But in Christ, as you surrender your life to him, you can have that joy that's everlasting. As we close out this time, I just want to challenge you today to reflect on his greatness, to rehearse the blessings, and to rejoice in the promise that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word today. We thank you, Father, for the richness of this psalm and, and what David has instructed us in through the power of your spirit. And Father, as we walk through these times, may you encourage us. May we be uplifted today May we encourage one another as iron sharpens iron. May we sharpen one another. And Father, may we give glory to you in all things. 
Father, I pray that as we leave here, that we would be reminded of your greatness all around us. And Father, as we drive home, we would rehearse the blessings of the things that you have given us. But Father, rejoice in the promises that are before us. May we please you in all that we do. Father, I pray that there are those here today or listening without Christ. I ask, Father, that you would stir their hearts to a surrender to you. That, Father, they would know that Jesus is the only answer for their life. And that they would commit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.